something I think that we have got wrong in science is we've forgotten that it's okay to be wrong, actually. I think if you make your best attempt at interpreting the data you've got on that day, that's as good as you can do. If it turns out in three years' time to actually be wrong because you know, knowledge is advanced in the field or you learned something more about the technology, then that's okay. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi, everybody. My name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely, Lonely Pipet. Helping scientists do better science. organization and genome function at the Medical Research Council's Human Genetics Unit, which is at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm actually intrigued to share my tips with the lonely pipette. Wendy Bickmore is the director of the MRC Human Genetic Unit at the Institute of Genetics and Molecular Medicine at the University of Edinburgh. She studied at the University of Oxford and did her PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Following a postdoc in human genetics, Wendy started her own research team at the Lister Institute for Preventative Medicine. Wendy is fascinated by the structure and organization of chromatin in the nucleus. Currently, her lab focuses on how the spatial organization of the nucleus influences genome function in development and disease. She is the editor of many journals, including PLOS Genetics and Cell. And Wendy has many prestigious awards. She's a member of uh, EMBO, uh, a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator, a fellow of the Royal Society and the Academy of Medical Sciences. Wendy, thanks for coming and giving tips to the Lonely Pipette. Thank you so much. It's great to have you here. And uh, we're very excited to hear, to benefit from the fact that you're not traveling <laughs> to actually get a chance to talk to you because I, I know you travel a lot. I do. Um, My suitcase that. is taking a rest <laughs> <laughs> for a very long time, That's I suspect. <laughs> Let's start with a simple question. Uh, how Tell us how you decided to become a scientist. Cool. So I think if we go all the way back to school days, I became interested in biology because uh, my father was a great gardener. It wasn't his profession, but it was his hobby. So I became really fascinated in learning to grow plants with him uh, and learn a bit about biology, I guess, through that route. And then at uh, towards the end of school, when I was trying to decide what to do next, I thought I wanted to become a medical doctor and to go to medical school. Uh, that, so that were my plans. But one summer holiday when I was I was working in a canteen, a race course, serving jockeys their lunches. Uh, and I happened to be reading at that time a popular, small popular science book uh, by someone called Stephen Rose. And it was called The Chemistry of Life, which and it was essentially about biochemistry. And it was the first time I became aware that you could begin to understand biology at the level of molecules. So I think at the heart, at my heart, I'm probably a chemist. 
I think I really want to understand things at that kind of level, at the level of molecules, um, electrons, those kinds of things. So I thought, I thought, well, this was an absolutely fascinating area. So I actually decided not to do medicine and I decided to do biochemistry instead. And I don't have any regrets uh, in that regard. So that's how I got into science instead of medicine, I think. And then I loved my university degree. I found learning about the subject absolutely fascinating. I absolutely hated the laboratory practicals. <laughs> I wasn't any good at them. Um, I think the problem with them was that, you know, they were too short. They last a day. You go in, it doesn't work. And you never got the chance to find out why it didn't work. But I was lucky enough in my undergraduate degree, it was a four-year degree, and in the last year you get a, you got a six months to go and spend in a laboratory to do a project, so a nice long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was lucky enough to go to um, the uh, Medical Research Council's Molecular Hematology Unit uh, in Oxford uh, and work in the department where Doug Higgs was, uh, still one of my scientific heroes, actually. Uh, and and that completely changed my perspective because there you get you've got a long time to craft your own experiment to make your own mistakes but then correct them and eventually get them to work uh, and I and I love the environment there the scientific environment everybody chatting to each other going to the pub on a Friday lunchtime together talking about science and, and so I I, bec- I learned to love the scientific uh, process through that project so that's the point at which I decided I wanted to go and do a PhD so really for practicing. Getting the, the, the how, how do you say in English, getting the hands in the mud? Yeah, get, getting is... your hands dirty um, and <laughs> having the space to make a mistake and, and, and put it right. Yeah. To, 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 I think the university practicals, they give you the impression that what you, you know, if you do an, an experiment fails, that's it. That's the end of it. And therefore you failed. And of course, that's not how science works. Experiments fail all the time. <laughs> <laughs> But so it's le- learning how to work out what went wrong and put it right. Uh, that, that, that requires time, I think. So I think that's so important that that is still embedded in undergraduate degrees uh, if we're really going to identify the people who, who love that process of doing experiments. If you, if you want to know how I ended up in Edinburgh, um, this is completely non- <laughs> non-scientific. Uh, so when I was in Oxford doing my undergraduate degree, I, I took up as a hobby uh, mountain climbing, uh, walking particularly, a little bit of climbing. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I come, my, my hometown is on the south of England, which is very flat and has no mountains. Uh, but, I, but I hung out with a lot of people from the north <laughs> when I was at university. And so we would spend every summer holiday in a beat-up old car with a tent, traveling around, walking and climbing in the Scottish mountains, So when I decided uh, I wanted to go do a PhD, my only criteria was I want to go to Scotland. And so I, I asked the, the head of the unit I was doing my project in, who do you know uh, in Scotland? And he gave me a bunch of names, one of which was Ed Southern of the Southern Blotting fame, who happened to run the Medical Research Council Mammalian Genome Unit in Edinburgh. Uh, so I applied to him and to a number of other places, um, and, and Ed was kind enough to offer me a place. So that's how I ended up in Edinburgh. That's funny because I, I met Ed Southern when I was in Oxford. Ah, yes. So this was before he moved down to Oxford. So yeah, after three years into my PhD, Ed decided to move to Oxford. <laughs> I've stayed in Edinburgh ever since, uh, which is interesting, I suppose. Probably quite unusual because I think the perspective is that you have to move around to be successful scientists. And of course, many people do. But of, but obviously it's not not essential. I think you have to move around intellectually and in, in your subject area, but physically you don't have to. I've moved around different institutes in Edinburgh, but I've done my whole scientific career now from PhD 
to director of a, an institute in, in one city. And if he hadn't become a biologist, what do you think he would have become? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I quite <laughs> like music at school. I was a passable clarinet player, but probably not good enough to do it professionally. If I, if I look back now, I think I'd quite like to be a gardener, a landscape gardener. I've definitely got my dad's genes there. I do still love gardening and I wouldn't mind doing it professionally. So I certainly would love to do something outside. I've got a thing about trees as well. So I quite I like working in forestry as well. And, and, and was, there any, uh, was there ever a moment of doubt when you thought you would leave? Probably not that extreme. But yes, of course, we all have moments of doubt. I mean, probably almost every day at some level. You know, low points when, you know, you've just been scooped or your experiments haven't worked for six months. You really think, oh, what am I doing here? Uh, but it, but it, there's always been enough stimulation and new things happen in science that it keeps you in, engaged. And I've always been lucky enough to work in places that are well funded. Um, so, you know, you could always do the experiments that you wanted to do. So, so yeah, you, you were still being able to, to, to keep going whatever happened because the financial support And also maybe because of the 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 the, the, the environment, the people, yeah, the, yeah, the people around you, your colleagues who bore you up when you're down, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So okay. yeah, no regrets. You you are what we can say uh, an inspiring woman in science. So we have some question about that. Do you feel that being a woman has at any moment affected parts of your career? Yes, yes, of course. I mean, not in a major way. I've, I've never felt overtly discriminated against. Partly maybe the field I work in, cell biology is full of inspiring women. You know, Edith Third, Geneviève, Amusny, um, Tizia Delanga, an enormous number in, in our kind of field of nuclear organization, epigenetics. Um, so partly that, so I never felt alone or, or unusual in that respect. And I certainly in my own uh, institute, my whole career, I've never felt personally any issues or problems. But, uh, but I, you know, As a scientist, what, the way you do your science is a very personal thing. Uh, and I'm not somebody who likes conflict. I tend to run mm. away from conflict. And I'm not a very aggressive person. And so I, I find it deeply uncomfortable um, engaging in the kinds of um, conversations I know sometimes other colleagues have with prestigious journal editors in order to beat their paper into the, the, you know, the super sexy journals. So I've, I've tended to shy away from doing that. So, so, so perhaps, you know, if you were to pick apart my CV, you would see an absence of those kinds of publications. And um, probably because mm -hmm. I, I just don't want to get involved in that game. Did, did you ever see any, any, any quality in science close to you? No, I, no, I've never seen it in terms of people being hired. And again, I, th I think because in the institutes I've been in, when we've hired people, we, we look beyond those, we do look beyond those simple metrics. And I know that's much more widespread now, which is a really good thing. Uh, but I think we've always done that. So, so you would encourage young women to c come into science that this is a field in which uh, th there there are really equal opportunities for success. I I think so. I mean, uh, equality is a difficult word, isn't it? Um, um, to quantify, well, to say everything is absolutely equal, nothing's ever absolutely equal. But yeah, I I, I think it is a field in which uh, women can succeed. Uh, one one of my One of my friends who was a, a, a PI in the same place as me, she, she said to me, actually, being a woman in science is actually much easier than, than other jobs because if I need to go to the school and collect my kids, I just walk out the door and do it and I don't have to ask anybody. You're a free agent. You know, you have, you have a job to do, but how you do it's up to you. 
We have enormous exactly. freedom to organize our lives the way that work for us. So we'd like, like to ask you about your mentor. So you, you mentioned Doug Higgs, and, and, and I can imagine I, I can imagine how he impacted the way you think about mentoring. So, so are there mentoring practices that, that you keep in your own lab that you learned from your own mentors? Yeah, I, th- I think I learned a lot. Obviously, from Doug, I learned the love of doing experiments with your own hands. Doug's always been someone who just loved being at the bench. I'm not anymore, but, you know, I, I tried to be as much as I could. Um, more, my, my first postdoc was with Nick Hasty, who then was the director of the institute that I now direct, so I succeeded Nick. And he was a fantastic mentor. And, and I think what I learned from him was giving people freedom and find, finding out what makes them tick and, and harnessing that. So, or, you know, listening to people, not trying to overly direct them and then bringing out the best in whatever qualities they might have. Have you heard mentoring advice that you've thought, oh, no, that's just those are wrong recommendations? Yes, oh, I, I have. Um, not not too close to me, but, but that, you know, there have been colleagues who've been mentored to say, yeah, who've been told, yes, you, you know, don't publish, don't send your paper there. You must send it to nature and battle your way through it. So that, that very granular advice, I think, has sometimes been wrong. Yeah. And of course, we all mentor based on our own experience and everybody's experience has been different. Do you, do you have some other mentors? So you, you mentioned Nick and Doug, those are people whose labs you've been through. My, my other mentor throughout my career has been Veronica Van Hennigan. So Veronica was in Edinburgh. She's now uh, in London and, and uh, emeritus professor there. So she doesn't have a lab anymore. Veronica's a, fr- a friend, probably as much as a mentor. And so she's always been someone I can go to to ask questions if I've been having problems or issues and we discuss science. In a- and you would still go to her today? All the time. Yeah. 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 We, we text each other, sometimes FaceTime each other. I try and visit her if I'm in London and we, yeah, we just bounce things off each other still. How, how would a young scientist go about finding a mentor? I think easily you can uh, maybe have it in your, in your lab, but what if not? So you can, you can have a mentor locally or, or you, you can have somebody who's not even local mentor you. And I, and I think you find those kinds of people by you know, going to meetings, for example, listening, finding people you admire or you think you resonate in some way. Because I think it's got to be somebody also who's kind of on the same wavelength as you, that, that you like as a person or admire as a person. Uh, not necessarily, I mean, obviously you admire them as a scientist, but not everybody you admire as a, as a scientist you would want as a mentor. So I think it's somebody, you know, who you'd want to go down the pub or I don't know, share a glass of wine with or something and just, yeah, talk about anything, be be relaxed with. Maybe, maybe people would be afraid to to go over, over the bio of the lab, no? So how they could have enough bravery to... Yeah, well, well that's, of course, something that comes with, with time, doesn't it, and the experience, because... You, If you're going to be succeeding in science, you have to get over that barrier, don't you? You have to go out there and, and mix and network with people, even if it's not something that comes naturally to you. So I've seen around me, do, do you think you should um, sort of contractualize, say, will you be my mentor? Or is, or is it much, something much more fluid? I think it's more fluid than that. I, I know today people are asked to write down who they're mentor with, and it has become very formalized. And I'm a bit uncomfortable with that because I don't think it, is a formalized relationship. It's a, it's a much more personal relationship than that. And, and do, do you think you might go to different mentors for different things? Yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah. so you might you might go to, for, to one mentor for, to deal with personnel issues in your lab and, and another one to deal with, you know, how do I argue with referee three about what they said about my science? 
Okay, so before we get to referee three, we want to ask you about the the recruiting. So, what do you, what do you look for when you're recruiting a student or a postdoc? What are the the important qualities that you look for? Passion and drive. They've just got to want to do it. That's the the almost the only qualification. And, and do do you, do you have a favourite question that you like to ask? I mean, we we have a standard, you know, with within these days of kind of HR, we we have to write, you know, have a formalised set of questions that we ask everybody the same. So, oh, really? um, okay. yeah, no, so we have to treat everybody um, the same. Equality and diversity is everything. Um, so, standard questions we ask students that I think sometimes they find uh, hard to answer is, um, I mean, we often we ask them what what you know what do you like most about doing science. But we also ask them, what do you dislike most and find the hardest? And how have you got around that? I think that's a, that's quite an illuminating thing. It's very easy for everybody to say, well, you know, I, I, I love doing experiments. and this, But it's, it's harder to articulate the, the, the negative sides of science. You know, how do I deal with failure and those kinds of things? I think that's quite illuminating. I, I'm just curious, because as, as a young scientist, I, I would love to know, how, how do you know that, for example, I would be enough... P- passionate to, to 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 do so is there some stuff that you analyze or are you is there some tips you have it, it's, it's not something that's <laughs> written down on the interview forms it's your gut feeling i think it's just the way you feel inside okay okay i can work with this person so yeah it's uh, more intangible than, than a specific thing that you can tick a box on so yeah so you have the the, the science and you have the 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 people the social the, the people, social the, yeah and um, then, of course you're not only recruiting to you in your lab you're recruiting to your whole lab team. So they've got to be comfortable with the person as well. So I always make sure that the whole lab hangs out with them and, and, and you know, gets to talk to them away from me. Uh, so they've got to be comfortable as well and, and, and think that this person would fit and become part of the team. And do you think you can spot whether someone's going to be a, a good scientist? Can you, can you predict their career success? Sometimes, but not always, I think. Sometimes, yeah. Um, they, they, there's some people you can see are just determined and nothing will stop them. And no matter how many knock, you know, knockdowns they'll get, they'll pick themselves up and get back on and keep going. But, but not always, actually. So it's, it's a hard thing to do. So you are an editor of several journals we've seen, that, such as Plus Genetics, Cell. Um, can you tell us how did you start this journey? I got asked. I can't remember which the first was the first journal I became involved with. I think it was Chromosome Research which I am still involved with, you know, it's a specialist journal. Uh, and of course, when you're a junior scientist, it's a great, great honour to be asked by an editor to come and join their editorial advisory board or become an associate editor. Uh, so you almost always say yes. Um, and I think as you um, become known in the field and you go to meetings, of course, um, journal editors are there at meetings as well. So I think you, know, you get on their radar and, and people begin to approach you. Do you do you think you 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 would have ever jumped in, into this adventure without being asked or No, probably not, no. No. I wouldn't I wouldn't have been forward enough to ask. And being the other side of the the peer review process. So there's a lot of discussion about about peer review. Do you think the the system is is broken as it were? So there's a lot of discussion are we doing this right? And, And what what do you think might be changed? How how do you see the future of scientific publishing? Yeah, I think the, the I think the system's been broken for a long time <laughs> in, in many ways. I, I was if you if you take a sign take a non scientist and meet you know at a party or something and tell them about publishing, 
you know, as a business model, it's completely ludicrous. <laughs> we, do, we do all the work. <laughs> it's our ideas. <laughs> and then, you know, we pay journals lots of money to take that <laughs> idea away from us. And then our friends and colleagues review it for free. <laughs> and then anyone who has to read it has to pay again. So it's, it's completely crazy. Uh, but now I think uh, we, there's so many journals. There's too many papers. I can't, I can't read the literature anymore. I've kind of given up. Um, and the peer review system is exhausted. I mean, trying to um, – my, my deepest experience probably is with PLOS Genetics because I'm a senior section editor there, so it's my job to help find handling editors and help to find reviewers for papers. And it's so difficult because so you know, people are being asked to review so many papers. And so the system's broken in that respect. So I'm, I'm, I think bioarchive is a fantastic thing. I'm a great fan of preprint servers, and it's, it's, I'm delighted to see the way that they've taken off. Um, but I think the next step is this idea that you don't submit to a journal; you submit to one place where it gets peer reviewed once, and then journals can come to you plus with the associated reviews and say, "Okay, we'll pick this up from here and work with you to get it through to publication." Because this this continual round of going from journal to journal to journal, um, submitting your paper is ludicrous. It takes it can easily take a year to get published, and that's just not right. This is just a means of communicating our science, and it shouldn't be that slow. But those um, nasty impact factors have a lot of uh, impact on people's careers and recruiting. As a director, are you are you thinking about changing that? Well, you know, I, I don't know if it's the true in your institution, but um, we are, of course, signed up to this San Francisco Declaration, where you don't count impact factors. And of course, I mean that is, of course, is an ideal. Um, and, and not completely true. But I would say we don't count impact factors per se. I would say there's kind of categories of journals, you know, the top flight journals, and then maybe the next ones and the next ones. And so actually, in our recruitments of group leaders, we have never just gone on counting nature and science papers. Uh, in fact, we've turned down candidates who've had more spectacular CVs who we didn't think their science was as exciting. So I, I, I think the impact factor thing will get a bit better. Um, now, on uh, on the fact of reviewing and, and, and seeing the submitted manuscript, is there a major mistake that you have seen many times uh, and that you would recommend uh, people to not do? Oh, in their submitted manuscripts? That's a, that's a difficult question. It is. <laughs> I, I don't think I can give a single answer to that. It's too, it's too complicated. No, and there's not a single... It's never a mistake as such, it's, you know things that are not done as well uh, as, as, as it could be. I think a problem in my field of genome organization and nuclear organization, there's this enormous, there's two problems. Uh, one is the is distinguishing correlation and causation. And, and you see this not only in submitted manuscripts, you see it in published manuscripts all the time, <laughs> where people say X causes Y when they mean it just correlates with. Um, and linked to that is there's all these confounding factors that go together in the genome, you know, gene density, epigenetics, nuclear organisms, they're all linked together. So how you unpick one without affecting the others, I don't think is appreciated enough. So again, some people might attribute an effect or a phenomenon to one thing, uh, when actually it might be caused by something else that's linked to it. So you see your role as an editor less as a gatekeeper and more as a accompanying a way of, of getting this out there? Yeah, you want you want to get good science published, don't you? So yeah, it's uh, kind of and, and trying to find reviewers who you would trust their opinion, who wouldn't be too nitpicky. If that's a you know, if 
I don't know if that translates into French at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, pe- people who can see uh, the bigger picture. Taking a step back and really see the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the story. You know, is this worthwhile, this information being out there in some way? Wait, do, do you find when you're at meetings and you say, I'm an editor of Cell or editor of Plus Genetics, that people react? Because we had a lot of people have this, this sort of antagonism with editors rather than we're all working together to get good science out there. I, I won't comment on the Cell thing. Um, <laughs> okay. But I will, about, <laughs> I will about Plus Genetics because actually I get very good feedback because I think people do see it as a community journal as a journal run by scientists for scientists. Um, and I've actually had some really nice feedback from people whose papers I've been involved in handling saying, I, I really appreciated that, you know, in the editor's letter with the reviewers, you didn't just say, well, here's, here's reviewers' comments and you've got to address them all and come back to me when you have done, that you actually took the time to say, well, looking at the reviewers' comments, you know, pay particularly attention to reviewer 1.4 and, and, and reviewers 2, you know, points 3 and 4. But, where reviewer three asks you to, you know, reinvent the world, um, ignore that. So you you could add your perspective on top of the reviewers. And so I've had very good feedback from that. So people are generally very positive, actually. Has being an editor changed your behaviour as an author? Probably not, because I've been an author a lot longer than I've been an editor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. We're going to take a little a break just to have a, have a stretch. Um, thanks very much. And when we come back after the break, we're going to talk more about, about your lifestyle and how you navigate um, your life in science. Okay. Hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Piper with Rono Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette. And please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. So uh, welcome back um, to tips from Wendy Bickmore to the Lonely Pipette. Um, in the second half, we want to talk more about about who Wendy Bickmore is, what makes you tick, and um, and maybe we'll start with a. So you, you told us you're you're director of this big institute, you're editor of lots of journals, uh, fellow of the Royal Society. How do you how do you manage to to do all those things at the same time? How, how do you what are some some tips? about managing all that? I, I don't really manage, to be honest. The answer <laughs> is I don't. <laughs> um, you learn to uh, what we would call wing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I think you know, when you're starting out, you, you, you have the time um, to be a perfectionist, if you like, and make sure you do everything absolutely right and do your homework and, uh, yeah, do one thing, do it well. Um, eventually when you've got you're juggling so many things at once you can't and sometimes you have to make a decision last minute do something on instinct rather than do all your homework and and you just have to get a bit comfortable with that and the I think the trick is to surround yourself with really good people who can support you in that uh, and help you so that's interesting do you, do you think successful scientists are actually good wingers yeah we're good bluffers yeah yeah definitely <laughs> And there may, there may be people who are excellent, you know, scientists, but but they didn't succeed professionally as well because they're not such good wingers. No, because if you had to do everything, probably you'd go crazy. 
if you really had to do every job to the your you know, the utmost limit of your ability, you couldn't do it. So how do you choose which ones, you know, it's good enough? How, how do you make those decisions? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at saying no. <laughs> so sometimes the decisions are made for you. I'm getting better. My PA, Katie, um, is very good at telling me, Wendy, you have to say no to that. You're doing too many things. Um, yeah, there's lots of... Uh, parameters you take into consideration of course the local things are most important to you, you know the things that are important for your own institute your own laboratory and then you know there's supporting the field that you're in um you know, so scientific advisory bodies for other institutes where you have common research interests i think are pretty important uh, as well uh, and and i've done a lot of grant committees particularly for fellowships for young people as well so making sure funding decisions are, are right for that those those people i think those are those are the top priorities to me the the, the journal things in a way are a lower priority i think so yeah you prioritize your 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 different task as uh, if there is an emergency this is really something and, and, and the impact that you can have on something so you know if you're on a funding committee you have an immediate impact on on an individual and a scientist you know you can make a real difference whereas if you know if i'm asked to sit on the university committee for painting doors or something like that you know <laughs> to be quite honest i don't care i'll probably say no <laughs> i should say no <laughs> your pa will say no yeah she'll say no for me <laughs> <laughs> so so was that a major improvement in your in your life that when you you got surrounded by all by people to help you in micromanaging all this stuff Yeah, when I when I became director, in fact, it was the Medical Research Council who funded us, who said to me, "You need somebody to help you. You need somebody." Uh, so I've got a, a, a I've got Katie as my PA, who's wonderful, um, and and I recruited um, uh, Helen Nickerson to be what I call my science and strategy manager, which basically means yeah, she's my right hand person. She helps me make decisions. You know, she's a scientist, although now she's got more of an administrative management role. But I can just talk to her, sound ideas off her. Um, she can help me do, you know, prepare documents and things like that. It's essential. Yeah. When when you took on the director, so it's a, a big institute, uh, and, and as you said, you were re you were replacing also you're taking over from a very well known scientist. What, what was what went through your mind at that point? Were there? Yeah. Uh, uh, first of first of all, I, I never thought of applying until Nick, the director, said you should apply, <laughs> and, and, and then I thought about it. <clears throat> And I asked, asked a friend of mine, actually, who is the a director of another institute in the UK. Uh, and I was surprised that she applied to become the director. And I said, why, why did you do it? And she said to me, because I didn't want somebody else to do it. <laughs> so she wants somebody else to come in and muck things up. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you think a place is good and you care about it, of course, you want to look after it. So, uh, so that's why I decided to, to do that. But, but how did you know you had... What it took. So, so I, so when I decided to apply, you know, you have to write this thing called a vision statement, which is like a couple of pages of the, you know, what you think about the place and the way it could go. Uh, and I, when I sat down and started to do that, I realized that I knew the place so well. I knew all the PIs in the place and what motivated them and what direction their science would be going in. That I, I realized I could actually knit together all those ideas into quite a compelling vision for the future. So I thought, actually, yeah, no, I can actually do this. But I see a requirement here is that you basically are interested uh, a minima in in the other people what they are doing and what absolutely they yeah you spotted that well done yeah so so I didn't go from just running my lab to being the director there was an intermediate step so our the institute divided into um, three divisions second sections 
Uh, and I was the section head for many, one of the section heads for many years uh, before I became the director. So I already, I, I was already looking after the groups within the section and enjoying it, uh, surprising myself that I enjoyed that uh, and sitting on the executive for the institute and things like that. So yeah, you've got to be interested in whatever other people are doing. That, so that becomes your main job. Younger people might think the directors of these places are people who who won't have the power. So you just said you just said looking after people and you love the institute, so you didn't want someone to come in and mess it up. Yeah, that, that's not. I think that's not what people would. That's not the way people. Other people might see the directors' role. Yeah, you're pro- you're probably right. Um, yeah, no. That, that, I mean, to me, maybe there's different kinds of directors, but to me, that is the job of, of a, a director is to is to look after the place and it's it's not a power trip can you tell us something about what your daily what your not your daily your morning routine what 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 do you what is your morning routine does it hold any little secrets there so so it would i, I can give you my, my morning routine before covid lockdown and my yeah. new morning routine bef- now after covid okay. lockdown because okay. they are radically different i have to say um, back in the normal life <laughs> before March, morning routines were, were pretty hectic. Um, if I if I was in Edinburgh, um, it would be kind of getting up. I think the alarm goes off at six thirty. I usually have, I have the radio on all night. Actually, I like to have chatter in the background. Um, but yeah, lying in bed, listening to the news for a bit, getting up, maybe walking the dogs, grabbing some breakfast. Getting dressed, having a shower, making packed lunch. We like to make our own lunch, and then rushing out the door and trying to get to the lab by nine o'clock. So pretty hectic. Um, when I was traveling, and as, as we discussed earlier, I travel a lot. And, and those days, it's you know could often be set the alarm for four o'clock in the morning, stumble out of bed, try not to wake anybody else up, get, rapidly get dressed, grab your passport and your suitcase, jump in a taxi, half asleep. Not very pleasant, but you get kind of get used to it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, mornings are very relaxed. <laughs> um, <laughs> still get up about the same time, but I know that you know, I've not got to go travel into work. Um, so I've got this extra time to just enjoy the sunshine, the garden, think about things before I, I still start at nine o'clock. I sit down with my laptop um, and start work then, but everything is much more relaxed, I have to say. And rather enjoyable. So I'm, I'm not sure I want to go back to my morning routine before all this lockdown. It, it will change the way I work, I think. Do you think it has this relaxed moment has improved your productivity then for the remaining part of the day? I'm not sure my productivity, but I'm certainly a more relaxed person and less tired. I, I I'm actually don't think I'm being very productive at the moment by not being in the lab. I kind of miss just being there amongst people. I mean, I'm doing things obviously all day long, like Zoom meetings <laughs> all the time, but I'm, I'm not sure any of us are being very productive. Um, what, what's something about yourself that people would be surprised to discover? <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty shy person, actually. I'm, I'm kind of shy and quiet normally. I'm, I'm not really a party animal, but of course, you know, you have to It have to be a bit at least. So how, how do you overcome that for these? You're going to meetings all the time and it's like, to just take a deep breath and throw yourself in there. And, of course, you, you're buoyed along by, you know, you see your friends, which is nice, and you're buoyed along by the excitement of the science, and that helps. But sometimes you just have to get on and do it, actually. And, and I, yeah. often in a meeting, always you know, always manage to take a bit of time for myself, just a bit quiet time, just to recharge the batteries again. Might be go for a walk or something like that, go for a run, 
Were there a moment or an example you remember where you felt terribly stressed about the meeting or about standing on stage to, to talk? Or always, always nervous about giving talks, always. I think it's like actors, isn't it? They always say that they're nervous before they go on the stage. I think you have to be nervous before you give a talk because I think without that adrenaline, you don't give a good presentation. But there have been meetings where I just felt a bit overwhelmed by it all. Um, yeah, and then I think it's yeah time to take yourself off shopping for half a day or something like that. You know, <laughs> so, I shouldn't be saying this in public. Should I? Go, go shopping, do something else. You know, you get to travel to all these places, enjoy them, do something. Yeah. Um, how how about we move to another topic now? Can you tell us and to our listeners about a, a major fear that you have had in, in your career? Yes. So I've had a few cases where. I just wasn't confident about the data from the lab. And so I think a lot of PIs have this anxiety. Is what we're going to publish right? Have I done, have we done absolutely everything? This result seems almost too good to be true. Uh, am I missing something? Did somebody do something wrong? You know, I think we're all absolutely paranoid about this and, and checking it. For the most part, um, you, know, you have complete confidence. I have complete confidence in what the lab produces. Uh, but occasionally there might be an experiment where, you know, It, you can't kind of validate your result using an orthogonal method in some other way. They're, they're, you're really you know, reliant on, you know, one set of, I don't know, genomic technologies or something like that. And you hope you haven't messed up. Um, but it's always that niggling doubt in the back of your, your head that, that you might be wrong. So that, in a sense, is a fear. But actually, something I think that we have got wrong in science is we've forgotten that it's okay to be wrong, actually. I think if you make your best attempt at interpreting the data you've got on that day, that's as good as you can do. If it turns out in three years' time to actually be wrong because you know, knowledge isn't advanced in the field or we learned something more about the technology, then that's okay. And it's okay to publish things that are wrong? It's fine, as long as at the time they were, it was your right interpretation of the data and that you didn't oversell it. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it's okay to be wrong. That's interesting for young people to hear because they... It, it, that's not something we teach, right? No, it probably isn't. Yeah, yeah. Because what do we write? We write, well, here's my results, blah, 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 blah. Um, and from this, we conclude that or we suggest that. So it, we're saying in the language, uh, we, we don't know we're absolutely right. I'm not telling you this is the truth. Uh, this is just my best interpretation of it today. And this is what you might do next. We might do next as a field to take that further. And let's so find what, out if we're right. What would you recommend to people that realize they have made a wrong Correct it. Publish it. Publish the, the your new interpretation. Don't, don't certainly don't sit on it and don't tell anybody. Uh, and I think yeah. you know, I think the other thing. I mean, when people repeat, try to repeat somebody else's experiment and they can't, they often don't publish that. And again, that's wrong. I think we, we need to know, and people need to publish negative data. Otherwise, mm. we, we're all going to waste our time trying to do things that end up being wrong. Yeah, we, it's it's true that we don't see a lot of negative data. Do you think? Editors, journals have have a major role to play in oh, this. Oh, absolutely! Uh, many of the journals, we won't name them, but we all know who they are. We are not going to publish negative data. Do you have any idea how we could change that? I, I, it's true that I, I'm I'm wondering that as as a young scientist. I mean, there, there, there are journals where you can publish negative data. Where you should be able to publish negative data. I mean, plus plus one, for example, is a good place. Uh, I mean, even in plus genetics, we publish negative data that you know have said you know this particular conclusion from another study can't be reproduced by us. 
So, so, so that's. I think that's great. I think it's it's very good to encourage uh, young scientists to to face these fears and to and to say, you know, as long as it, as long as you did it well, you and you put it out there, you can it can be wrong, and that's fine. Can can you think of a particular example of a challenge that you had uh, that you've had in your long career, and and how you ca- how you overcame it? There've been a couple of. They've always been. I think the biggest challenges have all been always been around people. <laughs> and, and learning to learning who to trust and who to listen to. Uh, so there've been occasions in in my group. I'm not going to go into more details than that. Where you know I've, I've listened to one person's opinion over another, and I, and I shouldn't have. I should I should have been more open to listening to other voices. And of course, those those, those people issues are always the hardest ones to deal with. How does a young group leader not fall into that trap how, how can we how can we be better listeners to make sure that we don't make those mistakes i so i, I think it's about getting the, the group dynamics right earlier on so so i think the, the major mistakes i made when i was when i was a younger group leader and i had a very small group so it's easy to make a big mistake by recruiting the wrong person at yeah. that stage mm-hmm. i think um it, it's easier now when i've got a large team and, and everybody's involved in in helping the recruitment process um, I think less likely. That almost suggests that a, a bigger team is easier to manage than a smaller team. Yeah, I think sort of counterintuitive. Yeah, because because one you know one person who doesn't fit in in a group of three or four is going to majorly imbalance the whole team. Whereas if it's one person in twelve, um, it the, the rest of the team is robust enough to deal with it. I think so. It, it probably is true. So I, I you know recru- when you know, if you're starting out as a group leader, recruiting your first postdoc or technician is so important to get that right so i think you know get get your colleagues to help you sit on interview panels with you and things and so you've got a sounding board for that because yeah you haven't got that wider support network of your own team to help you decide so that's the advice like when you start just don't be afraid to to ask other young team leaders maybe to help you to define the people yeah and and don't be afraid to not recruit somebody you know if you advertised a post for a postdoc uh, and, and you did your interviews and you just weren't quite comfortable with picking anybody, just don't. Don't think you just have to fill a post because you've got it. It's better not to have somebody and to start again, actually. So that's great re- recruiting advice. So to, to wrap up, we're, we're asking everyone this question. If you were to meet yourself 20 years ago when you were that, you know, just moved to Scotland or what, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, believe in yourself. Have more confidence. You can do this. Sometimes it's telling ourselves it's not easy. So how can you kick yourself and go 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 there? Is there particular tips that you have developed to tell yourself now I go for it? No, it's it's really just experience and resilience, isn't it? That that, that having gone put yourself through that process and got through it, all those uncomfortable moments, and you survived. You did it. You might not have enjoyed it. But it was okay. Um, you you gradually you, know, you gradually gain your own confidence to say actually I can do this. So, so the only only way to to do that early on is is to you know have those mentors and support network with around you that says, of course you can do this, yeah. So that's great. So we sort of come full circle back to the the winging it, and I think I think I think a lot of people you you have this fantastic reputation. A lot of people would be surprised that Wendy <laughs> says <it. laughs> you know she doesn't believe in herself and she's just winging it. So really, that's <laughs> it's been great. So it's, thank you very much for opening up to us. And to our listeners, yeah. so they get a little bit of a, and I think there are many, many, just, just talking about the way you see science um, offers lots of help to, to young scientists. Where can, um, where can people find out more about you and your work? 
probably on my website is probably the best place to find. It's a bit dry, of course. It's all all sciencey. I don't think there's much personal stuff on there. There might be a bit, though. Yeah. And then once we're once we're travelling again, they are going to see you at meetings. You'll right? see me at the meetings. You you might even see me at the bar. You, okay. You, you, <laughs> might, you might see me shopping. <laughs> <laughs> if they see you shopping, it means you want to be by yourself, right? Yes. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to add, some some closing remarks? Well, well, just to say, you know, perhaps we, we, we examine ourselves too much in science. We're always going, oh, it's such a difficult thing. Science is so tough. Actually, I think it's a great job that we have. We have so much freedom. You know, where, who, you know, how, in what other job can someone pay you a, a, a decentish salary to just follow your nose and follow your own interests and, and spend large amounts of money and on fancy equipment and technologies to to answer the questions that that really excite you i think it's fantastic privilege and we have enormous freedoms but we should enjoy it more and be more positive about science as a career i had just one last question if i can so so you you talk that the 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 crisis we are we are going through now change a bit your habits do you do you think you will keep some new habits you develop now for the future when the crisis will be passed Definitely, I'm, I'm definitely going to stop traveling as much and, and just have a bit more time for myself, actually, yeah, to enjoy it more. But, I, but I'm certainly looking forward to getting back to the lab and seeing everybody again. Definitely miss that part. So thank you, Wendy. This has been this has been great. Thank you very much for, for giving us your time. I, I'm happy that you're not traveling because <laughs> it means we didn't get a chance to see you, but at least we got a chance to talk to you. That's fantastic. And um, and look forward to, to, to meeting you at meetings. Yes. Uh, and, and crossing you when we both go shopping. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. So thanks for giving tips to the Lonely Pipette. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet. And please, share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to The Lonely Pipet mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile you will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show. And remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the lonely pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt. A bientôt. Hey guys, one last thing to finish up. If you like the soundtrack of the show, you might want to know who is the artist behind it. The song is called Lovely Swindler by Amaria, a talented French artist who composes Electro Swing. We are really grateful for allowing us to use it. And if you like it too, the best thing to do is to share it. Thanks again and see you soon.